0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health talks about depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, and more during his visit to Upstate Medical University in Syracuse.
1: So, this is an attempt to understand how the brain develops through the crucial period of adolescence and how that brain development affects the risk for illnesses like substance abuse, anxiety disorders, depression, etc.
0: A pediatric infectious disease physician and one of his students talk about their research on respiratory infections that's taking place in Ecuador.
2: You know, a lot of people haven't heard of respiratory syncytial virus, but it is the most common reason why infants are hospitalized in the United States and
0: most of the rest of the world. And a pathologist describes how laboratory testing helps doctors diagnose and treat patients in the hospital. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about Upstate research that's underway in Ecuador with a pediatric infectious disease expert and one of his students. Then we'll hear about a big change to the laboratories at Upstate. But first, we'll talk with the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, who was in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate Medical University? Dr. Joshua Gordon is director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the lead federal agency responsible for research on mental disorders, and he's in Syracuse to pre- present Grand Rounds at Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. He made time in his schedule for HealthLink on Air, so thank you for being here, Dr. Gordon.
1: Uh, you're welcome, Amber, it's my pleasure.
0: Now, earlier this year, the NIMH released the first data set from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, ABCD study. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, this is a great uh, effort. It's really a collaboration between many of the different institutes at the National Institutes of Health. Um, And NIMH is responsible for, among other things, the storage and release of the data. So this is an attempt to understand how the brain develops through the crucial period of adolescence and how that brain development affects the risk for illnesses like substance abuse, uh, um, anxiety disorders, depression, etc. So we're studying 10,000 children starting at age 9, and we're going to follow them and watch them grow and develop over the next 10 years. So this is a very expensive but really wonderful study that's going to tell us a lot of information. And one of my favorite aspects of the study is the fact that the data don't belong to the scientists who are gathering it the data belong to the public so as soon as that data is gathered and verified it is released to researchers all around the world so they can ask the questions that are really going to set the stage for breakthroughs in the future
0: very cool now where do these kids from, come from how are you these kids are coming connected?
1: from all over the United States in particular there's a focus on several things number one we want a representative sample so we're oversampling for folks from disadvantaged backgrounds, from underrepresented minorities, because we know those are really key uh, demographics, they're really key people that we want to make sure we have uh, data and research that is relevant for them. Um, The other uh, aspect is we're trying to get uh, folks from rural areas as well as urban areas, so not your usual, you know, Major medical center sample of folks who live in a big city. We really want to make sure that this sample is representative of kids all across America.
0: So, are you uh, connected with pediatricians, or
1: most of the children are being recruited through schools? Because we schools. don't, yeah, okay. we don't want to get a sample of people who are ill. We want to get a sample of children who are just the average, everyday children who are going to go on and develop the illnesses that our children develop. Uh, And so that we can really understand what that process is like and how, in particular, how brain development contributes to either risk for disease or actually resilience. We're hoping to learn how children who stay well, how that works too.
0: Interesting. Now, it sounds like it's a little early. Do we know yet? Do we have any sort of of overview on the physical or mental health assessment of
1: so they're it's nine years old, right? They're nine and ten years old, these kids, uh, and the vast majority of them are well. But there are some indications uh, that we are tapping into something here that's really going to give us information that's helpful. Uh, the, there is a, a surprisingly high rate of things like suicidal thoughts in this group of children. Um, there's a high rate of exposure to uh, abuse, physical abuse and, and, and mental abuse. Uh, so um, this is unfortunate, but it does mean that we're going to be able to study the impact of those things on the development of illnesses later on. We're going to be able to understand what's become a really important crisis in the United States that's probably not talked about enough, but the rise of suicidal thoughts and behaviors and even suicide attempts in uh, children, especially in the preteen age. So we're going to be able to learn a lot from this group of of courageous volunteers.
0: Um, I definitely have some other questions for you about suicide, but Mm -hmm. it's a little alarming for me to hear that you're seeing that in nine and 10-year-olds.
1: It is incredibly alarming. It is really compelling, though. Um, It's not terribly frequent, but we see enough of it that it it raises one's eyebrows, more than eyebrows. It it pulls at the heartstrings.
0: Um, It's encouraging, though, that there's this concerted effort to delve into sort of the cause or where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So that's encouraging. Now, your own research, your personal research, um, personal professional research, has focused on neural activity in mice carrying mutations relevant to psychiatric disease. Can you explain sort of what that means? What yeah. you're, what you've looked at?
1: Sure. So uh, we know that a large part of the predisposition uh, to contract mental illnesses is due to genetics. That means that there are genes that we all carry, which raise our risk for mental disorders. But what we don't know is how those genes actually result in changes in the brain that result in changes in behavior that uh, lead to disruptive symptoms um, that's what my scientific life's work has been trying to discover in particular we focused most of our efforts on one particular gene it's one group of genes on one of your 22 chromosomes and it uh, if you're missing this group of genes, you have a very high likelihood of developing schizophrenia. And we've studied the impact of missing those genes in a mouse model on some important symptoms that really cause disability in schizophrenia, that is cognitive symptoms. So people with schizophrenia don't just have hallucinations and delusions, the the psychosis that people think about, but they also have tremendous difficulty with things like balancing checkbooks, uh, remembering where, uh, actually navigating through cities, um, figuring out uh, uh, how to make it in life in general, even when their psychosis is is controlled by medications. So understanding these cognitive symptoms and how, in particular, the genes that lead to schizophrenia cause cognitive symptoms is an important endeavor, and that's what that's what I've been working on in the lab.
0: So um, Hollywood shows us the psychosis part of mm-hmm. schizophrenia, but you um, you have patients that you've taken care of or still taken care of um, that have left a strong impression on you about how, schizophrenia should be treated, right? And how it is treated.
1: Yeah, I had a, a patient uh, uh, who um, who suffered from schizophrenia her whole life. Um, the medications that I prescribed for her controlled the psychosis. They controlled the hallucinations. They controlled the delusion, delusions that dramatically disrupted her life. Uh, but the cognitive symptoms, which I could not treat, I didn't have any tool that could really help her with her cognitive symptoms, made it so that she had to take a cab the five blocks, five Manhattan City blocks, it's very short distance Mm -hmm. from her home to uh, my office, because she couldn't figure out how to walk those five blocks, right? That was the extent of her cognitive symptoms. Yeah.
0: So there is definitely a place for more development in how to take care of schizophrenia. That's
1: right. Our goal for patients with schizophrenia is not just controlling the symptoms, but really restoring full function to their lives. And We won't stop from a research perspective or from a clinical care perspective until we can do that.
0: Okay. Well, I want to ask you, too, um, about ideas that you have about how anxiety and depression are treated or should be treated. Um, I I read that neuroscience researchers have identified anxiety cells in the brains of mice um, that they think also exist in the brains of people. So, and I read that you had referred to this as one brick in the wall of research, which is an interesting way of looking at that. But can you talk to me about what these anxiety cells are and whether this is a useful finding?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of places in the brain where there are specific cell types, which when turned on will cause a mouse to be very anxious. And when turned off will cause that mice to, if you will, relax. Um, And there's some evidence linking at least those brain regions to anxiety symptoms in human beings. So what we don't know yet is whether those specific cells uh, exist in human beings and whether turning on or off those cells in human beings would have the same effects as it as they do in, in mice. Um, but that's the hope, and now that we know which cells to look for, uh, we're developing the tools through the NIH-wide Brain Initiative um, uh, to figure out Specifically what kinds of cells there are in the human brain and what their functions are. The Brain Initiative is a, is a big initiative actually funded through an act of Congress, uh, the Cures Act, that uh, seeks to develop tools that we can use the same wonderful technologies that we have to dissect the brain in mice, but bring those technologies into human beings. And so with those tools, we're now developing the capacity to so far at least identify cell types in the brain of, of human brains of human beings, uh, and we hope soon to be able to monitor and modulate those cell types.
0: I don't, I'm, I think, It probably wouldn't surprise people. We all know some people who are just more anxious and some people who are just laid back. So if you could figure out and tell
1: us
0: (laughs) why that is, that would be exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, there's some good data on it, both from a genetic standpoint in terms of the genes that make one more likely to be more anxious or less anxious, uh, and also the neural circuitry from neuroimaging studies. But it's delving into the details that will require these advanced tools, and that's what we're hoping to do uh, in the coming years.
0: Let me remind listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, you're also a member of the Hope for Depression Research Foundation Task Force, looking at the neurobiology underlying depression. So I want to ask you what do you think may lay on the horizon in terms of treatment for depression?
1: Sure. So, just a quick correction, I, I'm no longer a member of the task force. I can't be oh, and be okay. National Institute of Mental Health Director, but it was a, a collaborative effort, research effort that I participated in when I was, uh, before I became the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. So, the Hope for Depression Research Task Force is a group of scientists who've come together around the idea that, that our um, models of depression uh, that we use to study the neurobiology are lacking in several key features. Uh, The the principal one being that depression is a recurrent illness. That is, you don't just get one bout of depression. You get multiple bouts of depression throughout a lifetime. And that the biggest problem in depression is treatment resistance. And most models of depression use treatment response as a way of showing, oh, I have a good model of depression. So uh, the idea is to try to develop models of depression that show this multiple episode phenomenon and also that show actually failing to respond uh, to the appropriate medications. And One of the main things that that group has done is created uh, a a database where they've been able to compare uh, the changes in cellular function in animal models of depression as well as in humans with depression, and they've identified several key targets to come out of that. So that's really an effort to try to, again, understand the brain underpinnings of an illness as accurately as possible, translate from animal models of the disease where you can get into the nitty-gritty to to actual human patients suffering from depression, and use the knowledge from that translation to design new treatments.
0: We've had uh, other experts from here at Upstate Medical University talking about um, depression treatment psychotherapy versus medication um, but I also wonder if there's a, a place for prevention of depression, is that?
1: So actually, that's an area of very um, uh, sort of cutting-edge research. There's some efforts, for example, to inoculate, if you will, individuals against stress as one strategy for prevention of depression. Not all depression is precipitated by stressful events, uh, but, uh, but there, uh, many people with depression uh, have depressive episodes that are caused by stressors. Uh, and so trying to understand stress biology is something that the NIMH is very much interested in and their efforts, uh, both using both medications and psychotherapies to try to help prevent the adverse responses to stress. Uh, prevention of depression, though, uh, to some extent, we, we do know many things that could help prevent depression. Preventing child abuse, for example, we know that child abuse raises your risk for subsequent depression later on. So uh, that would be a public health goal, I think, that we could all agree on that would uh, reduce the risk of depression later in life.
0: That ties back to the ABCD study, perhaps.
1: That's correct. ABCD will look at that relationship and, and not just look at the relationship, you know, to the extent that we know it already. Those who have been abused as children, you know, go on to get... Uh, depression at higher rates, but also be able to look at the brain consequences. So, you know, we know that not all children who have suffered traumas at, uh, during childhood, not all of them will go on to develop a mental illness later on. Can we see something in that teenage period that either predicts uh, resilience or predicts risk, um, and and that will allow us to develop preventative efforts? that are based upon those who are really at risk and not not just everybody.
0: Interesting. Um, You've been quoted in multiple news reports having to do with suicide, um, particularly suicide among people in middle age. Uh, What are the main reasons that people in middle age are looking at suicide as an answer? Uh,
1: That's a a complex question, and we don't have a full answer for it, but um, there are some indications from a recently released CDC report last spring that suggests um, several factors. One is substance abuse. We know that over half of the people who complete, who die by suicide have substances in their system at the time of death, the most common one being alcohol, uh, but also frequently opiates and other drugs of abuse.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, another factor we know is mental illness. About half of people who uh, died by suicide um, in that CDC study had a mental illness that was diagnosed. Um, But we know from other studies that it's likely that the vast majority of the other half who did not have a diagnosed mental illness nonetheless suffered from a mental illness that was undiagnosed. So we know treating mental illnesses is a key part of trying to prevent suicide. But the CDC report also identified that significant stressors and lack of social supports also uh, increase your risk for death by suicide. So everything that we can do to help support those who are suffering from, uh, you know, whether it be family illnesses or uh, loss of income or uh, other disruptive factors uh, will help prevent suicides.
0: And some of those may be red flags for loved ones of, of people in those situations, maybe.
1: Absolutely. All right.
0: Well, I understand that you and your family visited a town in northeastern Poland this summer, um, learning about your family roots. So, and you wrote, a, you shared this on the NIMH website. So I wanted to see if you can tell us about that trip.
1: Yeah, sure. So I have, a um, for those who don't know, I have on the NIMH website, a regular a uh, series called Director's Messages where I write about mental health issues, and I often try to draw upon personal experiences to, to flesh out my thoughts about it. So I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to um, visit this town in northeastern Poland called Ostrow Ma- Mazowiecka. I think I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but this is a place where my grandmother lived uh, when she was a child during World War I, and it was a period where the town was being occupied by German soldiers. Uh, and because of the war, of course, there was a, a, a really a, a lack of basic supplies of food, of wood to, to burn to heat houses, and uh, um, a lack of jobs. And it was a challenging time, obviously. And my grandmother grew up in that challenging time. And it made me think uh, about... What we were doing at NIMH in terms of trying to look at the effects of stress, particularly the effects of stress during childhood, uh, stress and deprivation on subsequent mental health risks. So I I wrote about uh, our efforts there and contextualized it by uh, my visit to that town.
0: So what is severe chronic stress? Because living in a time like that of adverse, such adverse conditions, what does that do to a person's health and mental health or potentially?
1: Well, I think, again, different people will respond differently to the periods of of stress. But in general, the more severe a stress and the more chronic a stress, the more likelihood that even the most resilient of people will eventually have adverse impacts. Stress raises the risk, of course, for things like post-traumatic stress disorder. That's you know, a, 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 a constellation of symptoms that include high levels of anxiety, high levels of avoiding things, um, and uh, and often depressive symptoms as well. Um, it also raises your risk for depressive disorders and anxiety disorders, two different classes of disorders that have slightly different constellations of symptoms but share underlying biology. Um, stress also raises your risk for things like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia as well or at least may precipitate episodes of uh, worsening if you have a predisposition to those disorders So stress universally really increases your risk for psychiatric disorders it also increases your risk for physical health disorders as well so um, it has it, and and again different people respond differently um, uh, but again the the more, uh, severe and the more chronic the stress, the the more likely adverse outcomes.
0: Now, I always hear that you know children are so resilient. So, children living in adverse conditions, um, would they necessarily fare better? Or,
1: yeah, you know, it's an interesting phrase. Children are so resilient. Um, many children do bounce back quickly from acute adverse effects at least on the surface, Uh, but one thing is that even if a child might bounce back in the moment, the risk is there for their lifetime.
0: For a lifetime? Yeah.
1: So uh, uh, children may be resilient in childhood, um, but the effects can be lasting nonetheless.
0: Is that because, does stress have an effect on our genes? Like, does it carry on through the generations if you go through something? Yeah, so
1: there's a lot of data now to suggest that stress has effects that are called epigenetic, so not actually genetic. They don't change the genes. Our genes are pretty much uh, written there um, and, and inherited. Um, but there are marks, there are tags that are put on our genes that um, that instruct the cells of the body, uh, if you will, how to interpret those genes, right? Like like okay. any reader of a book, you interpret what you read here. The machinery of the cell interprets the genes. And how it interprets those genes are, is influenced by these tags. And we know from a lot of studies, both in humans and in animals, that adverse experiences change the tags. right? So they change how the cells will subsequently interpret those genes. Sometimes that might lead to resilience effects. If the right genes are tweaked a little bit so that the cell interprets them slightly differently but because of the presence of these tags, then someone might actually recover more quickly from stress in the future. But a lot of these tags that are laid down by stressful experiences, especially those laid down early in childhood, turn out to be adverse. So later on, the cells of the adolescent or adult human being will read out those genes differently because of the stressful experience. And that whole process is called epigenetics. And there's a lot of research going on to try to figure out which of those tags are really helpful and which of those tags are really harmful. And is there anything we can do uh, to change those tags uh, or to reverse the consequences uh, downstream of the interpretations?
0: That's fascinating that it could have such lasting implications. Yeah. So the situation with your grandmother, Nazi Germany, uh, Nazi German occupation, are, are there less severe situations than war that can cause uh, what I'm thinking of as like poverty?
1: Absolutely.
0: Is, does that have a similar effect?
1: So we know from lots of studies that poverty raises your risk for all sorts of physical and mental health disorders, and in particular poverty during childhood. Um, absolutely can cause it, but not just poverty. Also, uh, physical abuse or mental abuse, even in the presence of resources, uh, will raise your risk for those disorders as well. So stressful experiences short of war, yes.
0: There can uh,
1: be. Absolutely can be long-term adverse adverse effects, and we think these two are mediated by, at least in part, by these tags, these epigenetic tags.
0: So that sounds like chronic stuff, though. War, poverty. Um, are there acute episodes that can have such a lasting infe- effect as well? So
1: most of the data that we've uh, accumulated over over the years has suggested that the more severe and the more uh, uh, the more uh, frequent uh, the stressors, the more likely for adverse consequences later. And that goes for acute stressors as well as more chronic as well stressors. Well. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, of course, you can, because of a single episode of abuse, ha- develop you know adverse consequences, including mental illnesses, um, or I should say that a single episode of abuse can raise your risk. But um, you see much greater risk when you have multiple episodes of traumatic experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, interesting. Thank you so much for this information and making the time to come talk with us. My guest has been the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Joshua Gordon. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the Central New York connection to respiratory infection research in Ecuador. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. The American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene offers a fellowship in tropical medicine that's awarded annually to medical students who are involved in clinical or research electives in tropical areas. It's designed to encourage young researchers to continue their work and to recognize their achievements. With me in the studio today is the recipient of one of these fellowships, Dan Farrell, who's a fourth-year medical student here at Upstate, along with his mentor, Dr. Joseph Domikowski, a pediatric infectious disease physician at Upstate. Welcome to you both.
3: Thank you for having us. Thanks, so, Amber.
0: Dan is a native of Syracuse who spent the summer between his first and second years of medical school doing research with an Upstate team in Machala, Ecuador, and then he went back this past summer for another research elective.
3: That's correct, yeah. Um, I went to Ecuador between my first and second years to Machala, Ecuador. It's in southern coastal Ecuador. Um, and this past summer, I applied and got the Ben Keen Fellowship through the ASTMH, the American Society for Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, which um, was a big help to go again this summer.
0: Great. And then Dr. Domikowski spent a six-month sabbatical in Machala last year, right? Um, right, yep. So I what spent, were you doing for that
2: time? I, I um, applied, and I, I applied with the dean for a six-month sabbatical because I wanted to spend more time there and get some uh, clinical research projects up and going uh, in Ecuador. And the, working with the Ministry of Health <clears throat> and the ethics committees in Ecuador is quite different than, than the experience that I've had here. Things go much more slowly, and so I was um, eager to spend some time there so I could really understand the process and, and work those um, obstacles through.
0: So that's what it takes is sort of being there to be able to do that. So, so I want to hear more about the upstate Ecuador connection and what sorts of projects are underway there now. So can you tell me what you have going on?
2: Sure. That uh, The site in Machala has been active for now um, nearly six years. Uh, initially, that was done with the Internal Medicine Infectious Disease Group and Anna Stewart doing um, surveillance for dengue virus with a, a very nice grant from the uh, Department of Defense. And uh, as things went along, it was clear that we would uh, move toward doing some human clinical trials as well. So uh, really, things are progressing quite nicely there.
0: So you're looking into respiratory viruses? Uh,
2: Yes, my uh, interest for a long time has been in pediatric respiratory infections, especially RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, and learned a lot about that in and around the Syracuse area, Uh, but very little is actually known about the epidemiology in the tropics, especially in South America.
0: So, it's is it a different disease in the tropics?
2: Well, the, the seasonality is very different, and there's uh, climate influences and probably air quality influences that we need to understand a bit better.
0: Okay, all right. Well, um, Dan, tell me what you were involved in the times that you've been.
3: Yeah, so um, the first time I went to Ecuador, I was working on those initial dengue surveillance studies, um, dengue and additionally chikungunya and Zika right before I went to Ecuador the first time. um, The Zika academic was really um, in full swing in South America. Uh, So this past summer I returned to help um, with the beginning of this respiratory syncytial virus study. Uh, So it's a surveillance study for the causes of the common cold essentially in children less than five um, RSV can cause a severe form of the common cold, bronchiolitis, and lead to pneumonia and other serious complications. So this past summer, that, that was my main focus while I was in Ecuador.
0: So tell me, does RSV, does it start as the common cold? Kind of give me a primer on what RSV sure, is, if it,
3: you will. Yeah, it starts with runny nose, uh, cough, sore, sore throat, uh, just general malaise, and can progress to wheezing, can progress to pneumonia. Um, usually resolves on its own with supportive treatment, but certain babies, especially less than one year, um, can go on to have serious complications, especially if they have severe lung or heart problems, if they were born very prematurely. So there are certain definite um, serious consequences.
0: So is it, it's it's more than just one virus? I mean, there's multiple viruses that are responsible for the common cold, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So respiratory syncytial virus is just one of them and the one that we're particularly interested in. However, what we're doing is testing for um, 17 viruses and three bacteria, which are the common culprits of the common cold. One of the most common being rhinovirus, which is common here, common there, common everywhere but really this data doesn't exist in Ecuador. It hasn't been studied this way, especially in the outpatient setting, which is what we did.
0: Is the seasonality, you mentioned the seasonality is different there. Is it opposite of here? Like is there winter happening when we're having summer?
3: Uh, Not necessarily, even though part of Ecuador is in the southern hemisphere, it's on the equator. That's why it's called Ecuador. Uh, So there's tends to be a peak like we have here in like February, January, February, March, but there's also a summer peak in June and July of uh, respiratory infections. And in general, in the tropics, it, there's just more variability in the seasonality of viruses. And additionally, in Ecuador, there's another aspect, it, which is altitude, because Machala is on the coast, and Quito, the capital, is in the mountains and much higher elevation um, up in the Andes.
0: What does the altitude do to these viruses? Are there more of them at higher altitude or less?
2: Well, it it turns out that that this is a brand new area of exploration, even in um, developed countries in the world. And it does appear from recent work that others have, have looked at, is that high altitude impacts both the frequency and severity of RSV infection in particular, maybe some of the other viruses too. So we'd really like to compare some of the epidemiology from Quito to the epidemiology along the southern coast, which is at sea level, um, just to see if if we can find some of those patterns.
0: Would it be um, climactic stuff that's different? I mean, higher altitude, it's colder, right? Mm-hmm. It's Would co- that have something to do with it maybe? or?
3: It's colder. There's more ultraviolet radiation. Um, the air pollution is slightly different. Um, that affects the air pollution that there's more radiation up higher in the altitude. Um, and up in the mountains, there's much more variation in temperature and just overall different climate than from a sea level coastal tropical area, which is what you'd expect hot and muggy, or there's a rainy season and a dry season, but in the mountains, it's much more variable.
0: Well, it sounds like there's a lot to look into there. Now, your work in Ecuador, are you seeing children who have the common cold or RSV there? Is that part of your research? Do you see the disease in people there?
2: Um, yes. In fact, now that we have testing capabilities, we've begun to test the, the babies that we've enrolled in the study. And, um The very first test result that we got back was a baby that was positive for RSV. So I think that was a good indicator that we're on the right track. We're on the
0: right track. (laughs) I just wondered if there's uh, anything you've noticed, the differences you've noticed between RSV in Ecuador and RSV in babies in central New York.
2: Well, we started um, enrolling subjects in Quito in June and in Machala in July, So we only have a few months of data to really mm, sort of start to make those types of comparisons. But what appears to be true right now is that influenza B is creating a bunch of trouble in Machala. We're not seeing it in Quito. I think the RSV season is on its way, and we might have just caught the end of it um, in Machala with that very first positive sample that we saw.
0: Huh, interesting. Interesting. All right. Let me remind listeners: this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dan Farrell, a medical student at Upstate who did a fellowship in tropical medicine, and his mentor, Dr. Joe Domikowski, about research that's underway in Ecuador. So I wanted to ask you too. Um, both of you have spent some some time in Ecuador. What life is like there? What your daily life was like? Sure. So what did you enjoy about it?
3: Um- I definitely enjoy the culture, the people, the food. Um, So I'll kind of run through a typical day while I was there this past summer uh, working on this study. I would wake up and take the bus or a taxi to uh, the clinic, an outpatient clinic that was a public health center. Uh, Taxis there cost about $2, and this is like a five, 10 minute ride. Um, The bus is 30 cents.
0: American money?
3: American money. Ecuador uses the dollar, actually. They mm-hmm. changed the dollar in, um, a few years ago because of inflation in their country. Uh, so in the outpatient clinic, it's actually a pretty pretty nice clinic. It's new. Um, there's several pediatricians there. There's several different specialties there. Um, sometimes supplies are somewhat limited, but in general, people are seen and treated and given medications when they need them. Uh, so I would work with a pediatrician there and when a patient came in who met the criteria for a study, having, um, an acute respiratory infection, I would ask them if they wanted to be enrolled in the study and I would take a sample using a cotton Q-tip in the nose and put it in a tube and bring it back to the lab later that day. And, um,
0: the lab was close to where you were staying.
3: Yep. Lab was not, you know, a 10 minute bus ride from the clinic and, um, kind of more in the center of town in Machala, which is, um. Not really a touristy town, more of um, a big banana um, center. There's a huge banana plantations all around it, and it's a port city, so m- many bananas are exported from there all over the world, as well as shrimp, huge shrimp farms.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you speak Spanish? Is yes. That the language that-
2: yeah. There's no choice. Yeah. There's very few people, actually, there that are uh, fully bilingual and don't really run into many fluent English speakers. We have a few on our team. Um, but that's about it.
3: Yeah.
0: So you both are fluent enough in Spanish to get Dan
2: certainly is. And I've gotten a whole lot better in the two years that I've been going there.
3: Being there is a huge help and daily practicing. And
0: so you probably ate a lot of bananas and seafood. Yeah.
3: A lot of bananas, a lot of seafood, a lot of really good seafood dishes, a lot of fruits. Um, the, the market, you can get really, really good fresh fruit for very cheap and all sorts of things.
0: Well, I want to ask you, too, um, we're not that far out from the earthquake in 2016, right? And some of uh, your research is sort of tied back to that time. Is that correct?
2: Somewhat. That's how I first came to the idea that we should be studying the air quality measures. Uh, When I actually first met Dan um, in Bahia de Caracas, which is on the northern coast of Ecuador, a few months after the 2016, it was, it was in April, um, that the earthquake uh, really wiped out much of that coast. Um, all the buildings and many of the homes, several um, several hundred people died.
0: And neither of you were there during the earthquake? Is, or were no, you?
3: No, that was right before I was about to go to Ecuador okay. my first summer.
2: Yes, and, and I had planned a trip
0: in June
2: that year uh, to actually start the RSV project and, and get things up and running. And, of course, Mother Nature had a different idea, and when I got there, no one wanted to talk about research. They wanted to help the people up north, sure. so all of us just went up there and did as much as we could to help.
0: Now, some of the upstate team was was there on the ground during the earthquake, right?
3: Yes, uh, Anna, Stewart Anna Stewart was there, along with several of the team members who worked at the site in Machala, and they picked up and went up to uh, the earthquake-affected area and brought supplies, brought medical equipment, and were looking for a place where they could set up an aid station and ended up in Bahia de Caracas and started a relief clinic there which has morphed and actually has continued through the years and sort of like a community engagement project led by um, one of the students who initially came there.
0: Great. Well, um, now what happens with your findings? Once the study, I mean, you're you're sort of early in the in your research, but what do you foresee happening Um, with the results?
2: Well, one of the reasons why I thought this project was so important um, is because we are finally uh, in a position where we will have uh, soon safe and effective RSV prevention for young infants. Um, You know, a lot of people haven't heard of respiratory syncytial virus, but it is the most common reason why infants are hospitalized in the United States and most of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk a lot about influenza, We have a vaccine and we have actually medication to treat that if someone does get influenza, we don't have anything for RSV. A couple of discoveries just several years ago have allowed that um, whole uh, investigational path to uh, explode. So there soon, probably within the next two or three years, will be safe and effective prevention measures that we can use. Without a, va- a vaccine. Well, it's it's um, passive immunization. It's with monoclonal antibodies. But yes, it, it's similar to um, a prevention measure we use now in the U.S., uh, but with a couple of tweaks that make it far better uh, and far more appealing, especially for developing areas of the world where it will be much less expensive. It will be a single dose for the whole RSV season and hopefully be used in all-term newborns so we can take those hospitalization rates from three or four percent of the whole birth cohort every year down to a fraction of a percentage. That's, that's my goal. The World Health Organization won't provide funding or uh, these types of medications to the country of Ecuador if they don't have the, the epidemiology that they need to show when they need to implement these things. So that's why we're there. We really want to help them get the epidemiologic information that they need.
0: And that would help not just Ecuador, but the rest of the world potentially, right?
2: There, there are similarities, I think, between other areas of, of the tropics where there's dry seasons and rainy seasons like Ecuador. Um, but many countries really need their own data because things are um, very climate-specific and very geographically specific. And just because one place appears to be similar to another doesn't necessarily mean that RSV season is going to be the same.
0: Okay. Now, is RSV um, only an issue for the first year a baby's alive?
2: Um, it, it affects, it dramatically affects the extremes of age. So we okay. talk, I'm a pediatrician, so we talk a lot about infant RSV and being such a, um, uh, a nasty player in infant hospitalizations. But in um, individuals who are over 70 years old, it is the second leading cause of respiratory hospitalization, influenza being number one. And we didn't really appreciate that very well because our testing mechanisms were never very good for those elderly adults. Now we have really good diagnostic tests for them.
0: Wow, well, very interesting. I want to thank both of you for being here to share this information. My guests have been fourth year medical student Dan Farrell and pediatric infectious disease expert Dr. Joe Domikowski. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next, a change in the laboratories at Upstate on Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the main tools doctors use to find out what's going on with patients and what treatments might work best relies on laboratory testing. And at Upstate, the labs are overseen by the pathology department. And here to tell us about a big change in the department recently is Dr. Matthew Elkins. He's an assistant professor of pathology, and I thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you. So So, tell us about the big change.
4: Sure. So the big change for um, a a large chunk of our labs here at our downtown campus was that we finally got into new laboratory space, uh, the fifth floor of our cancer center building. Um, This was a really um, important change. The laboratory's space that the labs were in was from the 50s, 60s, and was very cramped, um, really constricted how much we were able to bring on new testing, as well as impacting how quickly we could get those results back to clinicians so that they could actually take care of the patients.
0: So now you're all moved into a, a much more spacious area.
4: Yes, more, more spacious, but even more importantly, not just the square footage, but it's actually, um, organized correctly so that we can actually, we actually had some labs that were broken up. One was at one end of the hall and their compatriot, the other parts of the lab that they needed to work were at the other end of the hall. So you had lots of people running up and down the hall from one cinder block closet to the other, and now they can all be in the same space. We get a lot more efficient, um, and a lot more effective.
0: So uh, patients who come to Upstate University Hospital and mm-hmm. have blood drawn or samples, whatever, taken, are all of those, mostly all of those done here in-house at the nice. hospital and analyzed by, lab like yourself and mm-hmm. colleagues?
4: Yes. Um, so all of our, uh, all the samples that are drawn here at the hospital or at any of our clinics, any of the outpatient clinics, any of the outpatient draw stations all come to the labs here at Upstate and the vast majority we actually will run in house. Anything that we need, that the clinician needs right away, or that um, we do a lot of, um, we have testing right here in house. Um, because of our space constraints before, there were some testing that we had to send out, things that could wait. Um, but now, with our new laboratory space, we're really hopeful that we can bring in th- a lot of those other tests. And have the, the testing um, more rapidly available um, for, pa- for our, our clinicians to help take care of the patients right away.
0: Um, because the labs, it's 24 hours, right? Oh, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, and, and we've talked with other uh, people on HealthLink on Air about uh, there's some fascinating stuff happening oh, yeah. in laboratory with genetic testing mm-hmm. and um, things of that nature. Is, is that what you're able to do in the, in the new lab space?
4: So certainly we'll add into that. Um, so this this move, unfortunately, was not all of the laboratories. This was the, the labs that moved were our 24-7 labs, um, our chemistry lab. So looking at the electrolytes in people's blood, a lot of the major testing that we do. Um, my blood bank. So all of the testing that correct blood products for the patients. Uh, microbiology. So when we're worried somebody has an infection, figuring out what bug is causing their problems. Um, and certainly a lot of those tests will lead into what we call personalized medicine or really getting at what is the right uh, test, what is the right diagnosis, what is the right treatment. Some of our more specialized testing, the the genetic testing is already was already moved into a new space because they were expanding so rapidly in there up at our biotech accelerator center. The good thing there and the reason they're in the biotech accelerator, one because the space was available, um, but two because the uh, results of genetic testing aren't needed right right away. If we have uh, somebody come in to the emergency room and they need answers right away, we really want that testing in the same building right. that, That's right. why we have the 24 hour labs in there in the cancer center. Um, the genetic testing it's going to take a couple of days to get those results back so it's okay with it being off-campus, but really close. <laughs>
0: okay, all right. Well, it sounds like, um, you know, the pathologists and lab technicians, they're really sort of members of a patient's care team that the patient may not meet, right? Absolutely. But are pretty essential to putting all the pieces together and making sense of what's going on, right?
4: Yeah, one, one of the, uh, uh, how to say this, one of, one of the descriptions of pathologists that have been given is that they're a doctor's doctor. Um, that usually we are not interacting directly with patients, but we touch on every single patient that comes in because laboratory testing is so prevalent. Um, And our role, uh, my role as a a physician overseeing these labs is to make sure that the right tests are being done at the right time on the right patient and that they're being interpreted correctly. So I I do a lot of education for our um, our laboratory information uh, laboratory technologists, sorry, our medical school, our nursing school, um, as well as our practicing physicians, um, interacting with them frequently. Uh, it's often a, uh, I'd like to say it's a requested uh, consultation but it's often an unrequested consultation um, because sometimes if somebody doesn't know what they don't know, I wanna make sure that there's not misunderstanding. So we're actually a very active part of patient's care. Even though we're not always a visible portion.
0: Wow. and in terms of you mentioned lab technology, that's uh, an area of growth, right? We're Absolutely. looking for more people to go into that field.
4: <laughs> yes, and there, that's actually a huge field. We've, we've mentioned my lab laboratory technologists, which here at Upstate we, in our allied health professions, we have one of the only four-year programs uh, to get someone licensed as a laboratory technologist. But that's only the start of it. There's actually all of the laboratory testing. We're constantly making improvements in it. So the biotechnology um, field is huge. And that's an area that's constantly needing new people to go into it. Um, and that's, I, I know, right next door at Syracuse University, they have um, biotechnology and um, bioengineering and number of, of course, which I've Helped guest teach it there. Well, I talk a lot, <laughs> um, so that there is a huge field and there's a huge area of need for um, for new people interested in um, being part of the medical profession. Being a doctor and being a nurse isn't the only profession by a long shot. One big area is uh, laboratory testing, whether it's on the front lines like my staff and I are, or behind the scenes making the next new test.
0: Wow, well, it's exciting, and I appreciate you coming in and sharing this information. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Elkins. He's an assistant professor of pathology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
5: Two of our poets let us see how the wounded carry on, regardless of others' puzzled or critical looks. First is Elizabeth Brule Farrell, whose poems appear in the Patterson Literary Review, Earth's Daughters, and Poetry East. Here is When They Stare. I am thick-pawed and feeling like another species, wearing my new neoprene gloves to spare my hands from numbness, as I push through the water, dragging my torso and my desire to to try and swim again. They stare as I sway in a dance of imbalance between the tug of water and trying to return to shore, reaching for my cane as a sailor reaches for a mooring float. Pride helps me pretend that I have control over my domain, draping the dry towel around my shoulders, my robe of dignity. Next, poet Gloria Heffernan from Syracuse, whose latest book is Some of Our Parts, takes on her own critical eye. Here is Sacred Ground. Soft folds of pale flesh, scarred from sternum to belly button. Beautiful. Not Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition beautiful. Beautiful the way the Grand Canyon is beautiful, deep and rugged. And enduring, an unyielding terrain proclaiming survival in the face of turmoil.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the heart attack that killed movie star Clark Gable. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find the podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, healthlink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for
5: listening.